All right. Well, as, as, as I've mentioned, this is my wife, Jenny. She's there. And Chandler's here. And um, th- I think there's a picture. Yes, here's our others. So, so my wife and I, and then, and then Chandler there. And then Lincoln is our second born. He's, he's our second boy also. And then Blakely, she's our firstborn girl. Um, and then Piper, she's our four-year-old. So we had two boys and then two girls because we planned it that way. Uh, I'm sorry, kidding. Obviously, there wasn't anyway. Um, but Piper, actually Piper, when, when Crooksy and Jamie were with us, Crooksy decided that he wanted to get a Jeep uh, when he moved to Portland. And so ever since then, Piper has been pointing out Jeeps. There's a Jeep for Crooksy. There's a Jeep for Crooksy. Um, of course, of course, like Crooksy wants a black Jeep. Of course, he's looking for a black. And I was just like, and Jamie was so funny in the conversation. It's like, but we'll look like you're going to be on a safari. He's like, no, I want to look like Batman's on a safari. And I'm like, all right. So we're finding Jeeps. Anyway, so there you go. Piper still got her eyes out for that. But that's our family of four. And we're just so excited to be with you guys tonight. Um, but this morning, I, I want to dive into a part of Scripture that's one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Um, the red letters, the parts where Jesus speaks. And more specifically, um, I want to look at a story that Jesus told. Because it's fascinating to me the way that Jesus taught. As we all know, Jesus was a rabbi. He wasn't the first rabbi. and He wasn't the first rabbi to have disciples. It was part of the culture. And he was a rabbi that walked and taught his disciples for three years. And as he taught them, he used many, many different methods and illustrations. He asked questions. Jesus asked all sorts of questions. Uh, Why are you terrified? Why do you harbor evil thoughts? Who do people say the Son of Man? All these questions. In fact, it's said that he asked somewhere over 300 questions that are recorded in the New Testament in his ministry. Uh, Jesus used visual illustrations. He would, he would take moments and he would use these visual illustrations. Remember when he washed the feet of his disciples? He didn't have to say many words. He just simply washed the feet of his disciples. And by visually illustrating something, he was teaching them far more. When he drew the attention to the woman with the two small coins, look, look what she's doing. When he called the children to himself, he used visual illustrations. Another way that Jesus uh, um, taught is that he created experiences. One of my favorite stories is when it was after Jesus was resurrected, and he's on on the shore, and his disciples were out fishing, and he cooked them breakfast. He cooked them breakfast so that when they came back in, they were into an environment that was welcoming, that was warm, that was an experience for them to enjoy, and then, to, to enjoy, and then he taught them from that. Then one of the main ways that Jesus taught is that he told stories, or what we often call parables. Uh, somewhere, it's said that somewhere he told, he told somewhere around 45 different parables throughout his time. 45 different stories um, to, to explain and to unpack truth of what he's saying. I think for me, I don't know if this is just American, if it's just human, or if it's just me, um, but oftentimes I have no problem thinking about Jesus as the Son of God, uh, as, as the Messiah, as, you know, all those sort of things. But as, as a rabbi, he would tell stories. But when I begin, if, if I actually begin to think about Jesus as an actual theologian, like a serious theologian. I don't often think about him that way, as somebody who so knew and understood the Torah and, and then began to unpack it. It says he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it, and so he began to explain, and he would teach in such amazing ways. He was a serious theologian, but more than just a theologian, uh, in Kenneth Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, which I would highly encourage you to read, he says this, Jesus was a metaphorical theologian. That is, his primary method of creating meaning was through metaphor, simile, parable, and dramatic action rather than through logic and reasoning. He created meaning like a dramatist and a poet rather than like a philosopher. 
This style of teaching or these stories that Jesus told is so fascinating to me, and I want to look at one specific story. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. We're going to go to Luke chapter 14, um, and then I'm going to read it, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it, and then we're going to dive into it verse by verse. Luke chapter 14, verse 15 through 24. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is, is in the middle of a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law. He's a traveling rabbi, and at that time they would invite them to come in to sit and to ask them questions politically, theologically, and they would just have these conversations. And so Jesus was answering some of the questions, and one somebody at the at the uh, table heard him say something, and Jesus, and then we, when we're right here, when Jesus, um, he turned to Jesus and, and said, "Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God." Verse 16, Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all like begin to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So before we get into this verse by verse, I want to actually unpack a few things. And for some of you, this might be elementary. For all of you, it might be elementary. But it helps us kind of get to the point I'm getting to. So bear with me. First question I want to answer, though, is what is a parable? A parable is a story that uses everyday objects, events, moments, or emotions to teach a much deeper truth. And in a lot of cases, parables teach many deeper truths. Um, and although there is some evidence that says that, that some of the parables that Jesus told were actually true, for example, a lot of theologians believe that the story of the Good Samaritan actually happened, and Jesus would just retell, re- re- retold that story to bring a point home, most of them that he told was not true. And in fact, he would just create a story in a moment to, to teach a much deeper truth. Some parables are allegories, some are analogies. An allegory, we've all heard of the story of the tortoise and the hare, where there's a much deeper meaning for each character. There's a point to that story, and every character has a little bit different depth. An analogy would, would compare two things to make, you make, make it make more sense. For example, I could say time moves on, or I could say time is like a river. And by comparing it to a river, I've just created more depth. It's fast, it's slow, it can be rough, it can be smooth. More depth to it, so that's an analogy. And Jesus would oftentimes weave allegory and analogy through his parables, through his stories. So most parables will use a bit of both. That's what they are. Well, why did he use them? Three things quickly. One, so we will remember them. Stories are so memorable. Stories um, will help you remember something long, long, much longer than a lecture actually could. Um, I remember watching Les Rob on Broadway for the first time. Anybody seen that on Broadway? It's brilliant. And I remember like days later, 
the songs, the characters, the plot lines are still running through my mind as I'm, as I'm unpacking what this story meant and how it was just fascinating to me, right? Um, I remember a while ago I taught at Westside and I'd spent weeks prepping for this message on grace and, and then the di- night before, like at the last minute, I added this quick story in about one of my kids that tied to a point. What do you think people wanted to talk more about afterwards? The three weeks worth of preparation, which was really good, or the story that I added in the last minute? It was a story, right? Because it's memorable. It connects. It connects. Stories will connect in a way that a lecture cannot. That's the first reason. The second reason Jesus used parables is so we will understand them. Um, stories are often used to explain much difficult, much more difficult concepts or from a different perspective. A stand-up comedians probably do this the very best of anybody I've ever seen. Uh, there's this comedian in, in the States. His name is Jim Gaffigan. And he does this in such a brilliant way. He, he uses stories and, and expressive uh, phrases to help you understand something that maybe you've never experienced before. For example, he has four kids. And most people that go to his shows do not have four kids. And so he's like, do you know what it's like to have four kids? Imagine you're drowning and somebody hands you a baby. That's what it's like to have four kids, okay? Or if you've ever, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever been to a Waffle House in the United States. No? Okay, good. A Waffle House, imagine you're at a gas station bathroom that serves waffles, okay? You've been to a Waffle House, all right? So it's like, you, you see it from a different perspective. Piper, my daughter, my four-year-old. So we have something, I don't know if this is here in, in, in the UK, but in the States, we have Shark Week on Discovery Channel. Is that a thing here? Okay, okay. So the Discovery Channel, it's a whole week loaded with shows about sharks because that's what you do in the summer to terrify children from going into the water. Um, this whole thing on, on sharks, and there's this one episode we're watching. Um, it's one of those, it's like watching a train wreck. You can't look away. You're like, what's going to happen? Um, but we're watching this episode, and um, it's, they're, they're trying to recreate the shark attack that happened, all right? So they got this body border that's 100 yards offshore, and they're saying, okay, paddle into the shore in shark-infested water. Kick really hard so it creates a fuss so the sharks will come to you, okay? And then they'll have a scuba diver on the bottom of the ocean with a camera filming as sharks come in. Then when a shark gets really close, we'll have you freeze, and then we'll all slap the water around you to see if the shark will be detracted. (laughs) I I don't understand. Anyway, but we're watching this, all right? And so all of our, all the, all the children are watching this show, and I'm like, what are we doing as parents in this moment? That's parenting to the side. We're watching this, and here comes a shark. Sure enough, this big bull shark, and this body border, you've seen it from the, from the angle of the camera guy on the bottom. This body is kicking it away, kicking it away, and the shark is getting closer, and the music's building, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. We're going to watch a shark tear apart this body border on TV. I've got the channel. I'm about ready to flick the channel or turn it off. And it's getting close to the music building. And Piper, my youngest, she begins to say this. Eat him, eat him, eat him. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you, who, 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 who roots for the shark on Shark Week? I mean, like, what are you doing in this moment? But her perspective is so entirely different than the rest of us. That's actually been something that God used in my life. All, like since that moment, I've thought so much, what am I looking at wrong? What should I look at differently? And that's what stories do, is they force you to look at something from the shark's perspective. And like, go get him. Come on, buddy, you can do it. Don't be distracted. And I'm just like, what is this moment going? That's Piper. 
Stories help us understand. They help us look from another point of view, another perspective that maybe we missed. But the third reason that Jesus used stories, and I think the most important, is that so we'll go deeper. I think people, for the most part, tend to look to the simplest, easiest explanation and then make a judgment very quickly. Um, And maybe, again, that's American, or maybe that's just human, or maybe it's just me. But to take the quickest, like, this, this is the moment, I see a picture of something, that's what it is, that's what it means. Or you, or you have a conversation with somebody for two seconds, you think, I know what that person's about. Or you have, and I've done that so often, and many times that first judgment is wrong, I'm just off. I remember one time a few, a while ago, Chandler came running in, Dad, Piper took down my football cards, opened them up, and threw them all across the room. And I'm like, okay, well, did you see her take the box down? Well, No. Did you see her open the box? No. Did you see her throw the cards? No. I just came in and saw that moment. And I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, you, take, you, you took a snapshot of something and you made the quickest, easiest judgment on the whole thing. Now, to be fair, Chandler was 100% correct. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. But the point of the story is that you can't just take a quick snapshot of a moment and think That's what happened. But so often we do that. And and the thing is, is that when Jesus spoke in stories, most of the time, he wouldn't give closure. He would leave tension hanging in the air, and the crowds would find themselves sucked into this story, to the emotions, to the characters, and like we all do, they would want closure. But the only way for them to get closure with a parable was to ask the question, who am I in the story, and what am I going to choose? You, you see, you can't boil a parable down to one universal point that works for everyone. Because all of us can relate in different ways to it. All of us are at a different, different journey of our spiritual maturity and our walk. And a parable could speak to us all completely different. It could speak to you different every time you read it. That's the point of it. There's not just one application. And so because the true meaning of the parable is left to the hearer to discover, the potency of it, the power of it, the truth of it could be missed. In fact, I've heard people say before that, that the meaning of parables are hidden from us. To that I'd say, no, the meaning of the parables are hidden for us so that we will dive deeper, so that we won't just read it and move on, so that we will stop and take a second. If your heart is open, you will find Jesus in the stories. In John 9, verse 39, he says this, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. The more profound meaning of the stories that Jesus told can be hidden from those who refuse to grow beyond what your fear and pride will allow. I'm going to say that again. The more profound meaning of the stories that Jesus told can be hidden from those those of us who refuse to grow beyond what our fear and our pride will allow. Our our preconceived ideas of what he's going to say, of what scripture says, of what I already think this parable means. And so my prayer this evening is that our fears and our pride would not get in the way, that we'd be brave enough to allow the truth of the scripture to speak to us in new ways. So we've answered the what and the why. Let's move to the next question. It's the how. How are we supposed to read them? with tons of prayer first. God, what do you want to say to me through this today? How do you want to speak to me? But secondly, you've got to study the culture of the time 
You've got to study and understand what's going on. Listen to, the, listen to the parable through the filter of those who would have listened to it at the time that Jesus told it. What's, what are the details that we miss today in our culture? What are the things that we go right over that, that, we, that are implicitly um, um, described or explicitly described or are left out or added that shouldn't be in a story like this? It's all over the place. Jesus did these things on purpose. For example, let's look down at the passage. Let's start in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now, whenever I've read this before, oftentimes I go right over this phrase as, as, a, as nothing more than, than just an outburst from somebody at the table. Somebody just must have got excited that they were sitting there eating dinner, and there's Jesus sitting there, and they just said, Blessed, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. What we miss, though, is that this comment from one of the guests is a challenge for Jesus. It's a challenge to address one of the most used biblical metaphors of the kingdom of God, a feast. It's a challenge for him to address this meta metaphor that's, that's been under debate for about 700 years. You see, when Jesus approaches this subject, he's participating in a conversation in tension that had begun way back with Isaiah the prophet. Let's set the stage here. A traveling rabbi passes through the city, a local city. The Pharisees, teachers of the law, see him, invite him in, ask him all these sorts of questions, theologically, philosophically, politically, and, and see where he stands on these things. And so when this one guy says this, or this guest at the table says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, what they expected Jesus to say would have been something more along the lines of this. Our responsibility lands on the challenge to keep the law in such a precise way so that when the great day comes, when the feast is ready, we will be counted worthy to have a seat at the table. That's what, that's what he should have said. And they would all look at each other and nodded, like, yep, he passed. Very good, very good. But what Jesus said was quite different. In fact, Jesus responds with an extremely different view of their culture. In order to understand this, though, let's jump back 700 years to the book of Isaiah, when the very first prophecy about this banquet is mentioned. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all nations. He's, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. What would have stood out when Isaiah prophesied these words from God would have been this. All peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth. Isaiah's prophecy meant that everybody was invited to this feast that the Lord would create. The beginning, the first mention of the kingdom of God being, being uh, compared to a feast. And Isaiah is saying everybody is welcome. All peoples, all faces, all nations. Everybody has a seat at the table. This was not a popular view. This was not one that, that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law liked. 
Remember, their view was that it was just for the chosen people, just for the Jews and Gentiles had no place in there. All peoples did not have a place at this banquet. And so what actually happened is that as this prophecy was retold, as this, as this prophecy was written down again, and I'm not talking about the transcribing of Scripture, I'm talking about the retelling of, of, of the prophecies, and people would write down some of the prophecies that Isaiah said. As they were written down again for, other, for next generations, they were changed. This prophecy specifically was changed. In fact, one of the retellings was written in a document called the Targum, and this is what it reads. Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples in the mountain a meal. There we go. So far, so good, right? And although they supposed it as an honor, it will be a shame for them, and great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. It's a little bit different than what Isaiah first prophesied. He prophesied all people, all faces, all nations are welcome. But culture didn't agree and so they tried to change it. And not much later, actually another document emerged called the Book of Enoch, which takes it even a step further. This book also speaks of the great banquet with the Messiah, and it does include that all the Gentiles will be there as well. But the angel of death will then show up and will use his sword to destroy all the Gentiles. Once that happens, the righteous will have to wade through the blood and the gore to get to the banquet where they will be seated with the Messiah. And that would have been the view that the culture had at the time that this guest at the banquet said those words. That would have been what they thought of the Messianic banquet. That would have been what they thought is going to happen. And so when he makes that statement, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, that's the view he had. So when Jesus, I can only imagine the look when that, when that comment is made and Jesus looks at him with so much love, with so much compassion, and such a desire to right the wrong thinking. And so instead of answering the way that they assumed Jesus tells a story. Isaiah's beautiful vision of a feast where all the faithful people of the nations would come together at God's invitation to sit with the Messiah had been completely lost. And it's to this skewed thinking that Jesus tells his story. Verse 16, Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet. He goes right to it. He goes right to the banquet, right to the... He, go, he addresses the, 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 the challenge. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. Instantly, Jesus is invoking that imagery of the great feast. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Invitations to feasts were done in multiple stages. Um, it's an, actually pretty similar to how it's done today. You have like a first, hey, you want to come in for dinner? First invite or tea or whatever. Anyway, and then you, uh, once they're at the house, then you say, okay, it's ready. Come on in. It's two stages, all right? 
Verse 18, but they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said, I had just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. This would have been a part of the story that would not have been expected. This would be equivalent to the part of the evening when the guests are at your home and you say, okay, dinner's ready. And they stand up and they say, peace out, I'm out. And they take off. That doesn't make sense. One person with a good excuse, okay, you can still have it. But all of them leaving at the same time and making horrible excuses, that's planned. That's an insult. I mean, the excuses are not good. I've just bought a field and I must go see it. You, you wouldn't do that in this time, in this culture. You wouldn't buy a field, especially in the dry, parched land that they were in, when water was life. And a field, if it didn't have water, it was no good. You don't buy water and then examine it for— then exam, or you don't buy a field and then examine it later. That, that would not make sense. Same is true with the second excuse, the, the yoke of oxen. You, you wouldn't buy oxen and then go check it out. You're not going to buy a car before you sit in it and drive it and look at it. You would go do that first. Uh, a while ago, we were driving in the car, and my two boys were in the far back, and all of a sudden I heard Chandler, Chandler yell out, or Lincoln yell out, Ow! I'm like, what happened? Chandler bit my ear. To which Chandler quickly replied, It was an accident! <laughs> and then I drove for the next ten minutes contemplating the possibility of biting somebody's ear as an accident. I don't think, I'm not, you can't give me a stupid excuse and expect me to think that that's why, this is the same sort of thing here. These excuses were horrible. The final excuse, I just got married so I can't come, this is actually far more, um, it's far more uh, rude than we ever give it credit for. This is far more off color. It's far more um, raunchy. I asked where we use in the state. Anyway, it's like one of these, it's like, it's basically saying, yeah, I've got a date back at the house, and I'm gonna, you know, it's really, it's like, it's not what you would say to the master of a home. It's not how you would speak of your bride. And so this would have been a part of the story where the listeners would have been, what? 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 And this is beautiful. Look what Jesus does here. The servant came back and reported this to his master. In verse 21 here, it says, Then the owner of the house became angry. That would have made sense. That would have made sense. If you're going to treat the master that way, then the master is going to become angry. And the listeners would have responded the same way. They would have thought, yes, this is the part of the story where the master goes out and kicks some tail. This is what's going to happen next. And I can only imagine how Jesus must have told the story. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant to go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. I, that, that wouldn't have made any sense to the hearers. You, you don't do that. But look what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing back this beautiful vision of Isaiah's prophecy that all are welcomed. All are invited to this feast. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Not just those who have thought they had an invitation, but all people. 
And then in verse 22, Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, Go out quickly to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. There's still room, and the master is sending him further out to compel people. The traveling wanderers would have been taking the roads that would have gone around the city. And so to have somebody come out and invite them in where they weren't even planning on stopping, it's been like, what? You don't know me. You don't know where I'm coming from. You don't know where I'm going. Why would you want me to come to that? I'm not going to go to that. And so he says, compel them to come. That word is literally grab onto them and pull them to. Don't let them say no. I want them in my house. You see, the focus of this parable, I said earlier, when you read a parable, you have to ask yourself, who are you and what are you going to do? But you first figure out who Jesus is. And then you say, who am I and what am I going to do? And in this story, it's not so much about us. In this story, it's about how desperately the master wants you at his table. How desperately he wants each of us there that he would do and did do anything. So, and and he, he gave his life so that we could be at the table with him. And Jesus, Jesus finishes the story by saying, I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Remember, he's talking to the religious leaders of the village. He's talking to those who view themselves as righteous, to those who imagine themselves to have a seat at this banquet. Now, maybe some of them in that room with him were truly righteous, and maybe some of them were not, but all of them had to come to terms with the tension that's hanging in the air. Now, I know for us tonight, there's probably, there's probably three different groups of people, maybe more in here. There's those of us who have accepted that first invitation and have said, yes, I know that I'm invited. I'm happy to be invited to that. But when the second invitation comes, the invitation to now eat of my bread, to drink of my cup, to live out what he's calling me to do, oftentimes we come up with excuses for this. Like, yeah, I would come to church more often, but, yeah, I would be, I, I, I would do those Bible read-through groups, but there's this thing going on, my work schedule's crazy, oh, when it gets done, then I'll do it. Yeah, I would spend more time with my daily devotions with God, but it's just this thing is happening, it's got my, my, my school schedules off, so once that finishes, then I will. The master's response to complacency is not good in this story. It's like, when that invitation comes, do we step into that? Do you see the tension hanging in the air? Do you see how Jesus would have left that? And maybe there's some of us here who, who have not even accepted that first, had no idea there was an invitation. It's like, what, what feast? There's a feast? What's going on there? Why would he want me here? He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know where I've been. He doesn't know what I've done. And if he did, he wouldn't want me. The master tells his servant, compel them to come. Come now, for everything is ready. Come. Everybody, all peoples, all nations, all faces are welcome. I want to know them personally. I want to love them. I want to have a relationship with them. And then there's a whole group of people in here that might feel like they're more in the, in the, in the story, that they're the servant. The, the, the beautiful thing about the story is the servant never questions the master. No matter how inappropriate or off or different or whatever the servant thought it might have been, he did it. The servant didn't get to pick the guest list. The servant just did it. He just responded. He said, yes. 
He caught the vision of the master, and he even said, it's not full. There's still more room. He could have said, okay, I've, I've done, I've, I've, we've invited extra people. There's those other people in here. That's good. But no, he caught the vision of the master. I see what you're doing, and there's still room. Where else can I go? When that invitation comes and he says, go, do we go? When he says, move to Portland, do you move to Portland? You say, okay, God, I'm going. Yes, it doesn't make sense. It's difficult. Yes, are you going to go? Are you going to do what he's asking you to do? Are you gonna, he's compelling you to come to his table. I could, I could make a nice little application for this and just like, and then here you go. But that's not the point of parables. They leave the tension so that we can ask ourselves, who are we and what are we going to do out of this? Let's stand and pray together. Jesus, Yahweh, Lord of hosts, God, thank you that you are a God who has invited all of us all peoples, all nations, all faces, all the earth, that you are a God who has invited all of us, that you sent your Son to die for us, that we could have a seat at the table. God, I pray that you would give us the strength. Give us the strength to do what you've asked us to do. When that time comes, to step further into our relationship with you. When that time comes to say no to the things that we had been saying yes to. When that time comes to reorient our priorities, our motives, our values, that we would do it. That we'd be brave enough to say yes to the Master. Jesus, I pray for every single one of my brothers and sisters in this room. That our hearts would be open. That our hearts would be open. Say, I want to go deeper with you, Jesus. Amen.